Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 56 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome former Fermilab physicist, Gerald Jackson, who received his doctorate in the field of accelerator physics from Cornell University in 1987. During his 14 years at Fermilab, Jackson served as instrumentation department head, leader of main ring operations, and leader of many accelerator technology development projects. A fellow of the American Physical Society and a senior member of the IEEE, since 2000, Jackson has founded several companies, including one which addresses antimatter propulsion problems for NASA. But today, we're primarily going to be discussing Jackson's ideas about how antimatter propulsion could be brought to fruition within the next 25 years. Jackson joins us from Chicago. Gerald, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hi, thank you for having me on. First off, uh, not to confuse listeners who are familiar with dark matter or dark energy, but antimatter really has nothing to do with either dark matter or dark energy, does it? That's correct. I mean, dark energy and dark matter are hypotheses that uh, some astrophysicists have posited to try to explain why the Hubble constant is showing an acceleration of the expansion of the universe. On the other hand, antimatter is actually verified, measured. We actually had production factories. We actually produce it in the lab. Uh, so it's a completely different animal. As I noted in Forbes, antimatter, as you just mentioned, is like normal matter, but all the particles have the opposite charge. That means an antimatter electron has the opposite electric charge of a normal matter electron and also has the ability to annihilate if it finds its own partner particle. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so, I mean, most people, I think, uh, remember from grade school or high school that a proton is positively charged, an electron is negatively charged, and the electron circles around the proton. In the antimatter world, you have an antiproton for the hydrogen atom in the, in the nucleus, and then you have a positron, the antimatter version of the electron, that orbits that antiproton. So in the sense of an anti-hydrogen versus regular hydrogen, they have the same mass, they, they react the same way, they just, the individual particles have flipped electrostatic charge. When they collide, where they come into contact with one another, either electron and positron or a proton and antiproton, they annihilate each other and form basically a cloud of pure energy, which then, very similar to the Big Bang, will cool down and turn into other particles. So please explain how in the early universe, just fractions of a second after the Big Bang, the ratio between matter and antimatter shifted inexorably towards normal matter. Well, again, that is a hypothesis that is not proven. It, there's no experimental evidence for that to be true. The only reason people say that, you know, the old Copernican problem that the whole universe is basically what I measure here. There are there is an alternative theory in which, and that and this is supported by some experimental um, evidence, 
uh, that we saw in, uh, for instance, at the Tevatron, where we did particle proton-antiproton collisions in detectors and imaged what came out of those annihilations. Uh, th there is an alternative model where when the universe cooled, it, uh, it uh, created particle-antiparticle pairs that flew off in, in other, basically in opposite directions, so back to back from one another. These in uh, uh, particle detectors at the Tevatron were called jets. And so you would have a, a normal matter jet and you would have an antimatter jet, and they would go off in different directions. The same thing could be true of our universe, where it, when the Big Bang first started cooling, the matter and antimatter came off in jets that went off in different directions. And so we just happen to be in what we call a normal matter uh, jet, or which is now cooled down into galaxies and dust clouds and everything else you associate with the universe. Whereas in another part of the universe, that whole infrastructure is antimatter. If what you're saying is true, then there could be a whole another part of the universe that was an antimatter universe. Uh, but Correct. So then the question is, why don't we observe that? Go ahead. Okay, so there's two answers to that question. First of all, you wouldn't naively because light is neither matter nor antimatter, okay? And so you cannot tell from, uh, you know, let's say you have a positron orbiting an antiproton, and it, uh, it's excited and then de-excites and emits a uh, alpha line or, you know, a Balmer line or, you know, some sort of light. That light, when it travels to us, is indistinguishable from the exact same light, uh, photon that would have been generated by a normal proton and a normal electron orbiting that normal proton. So from the light itself, you cannot tell. Now, there have been some papers where people have said, well, you know, at the edges between the uh, matter and antimatter regions of the universe, you would expect to have some collisions of some dust and they put together some estimates that said, okay, assuming a certain density, we would see a very large gamma ray spectrum that we don't observe. Well, that also assumes that matter and antimatter attract each other rather than repel each other. And we have yet, as a species, we have yet to measure the gravitational repulsion or attraction between matter and antimatter. So we actually don't know what that answer is. So in a, in a world where the antiprotons and anti, you know, the positrons repel gravitationally, the protons and electrons, you wouldn't expect to see those collisions. Therefore, you wouldn't see those gamma rays. And the uh, this idea that different parts of the universe are, you know, vary between matter and antimatter still is valid. Let me interrupt you and guess, give us a parenthetical definition of a positron because we hadn't discussed that. Uh, well, positron is an anti-electron. So okay. it's the it's the antimatter version of the electron. Uh, an electron has a negative charge. A positron has a positive charge. Correct. Okay. And uh, a Balmer line? Uh, when, so it most, I mean, if a cold uh, molecule of hydrogen is in its ground state. So the all the electron is in the ground state. And now if I excite it and uh, elevate the electron up to a, uh, to a higher orbital state, and then it decays back down, it emits a photon. That's how it gets rid of that extra energy. And what is and that it, photon? What, what do you mean the, by the, That's the spectrum. What, what, but what do you mean by ground state? Let's define the terms. Okay, so for instance, let's say you live in a, in a valley and you have a, uh, a car that doesn't have an engine, it's a, or the car's a neutral, okay? 
if the car is stationary sitting at the bottom of the valley, then it's in a ground state. But if you kick the, if you accelerate the car so it goes up one wall of valley, comes back down and goes up the other side, it just oscillates back and forth. It's now in an excited state. In quantum mechanics, a um, uh, objects have instead of continuum, you know, I can have the car go twice as high or three times as high or whatever up the walls of the valley. In a atom, that's ruled by quantum mechanics, and there's only well-defined uh, discrete states or discrete energy levels that you can have. And so in the hydrogen atom, uh, certain transitions from one of these elevated states down back down to the ground state has a certain amount of an energy difference. And that energy difference when the electron falls back into the ground state is made up for by the emission of a, of a light particle or photon. And that those are in those back in the old days when they started measuring the spectrum of light from excited, you know, from plasmas of hydrogen and helium and so on. In the hydrogen world, they called these lines alpha lines, Balmer lines, depending on the uh, band in the excitation level. Near the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, there is a stream of antimatter, correct? Even well, there's, there's antimatter everywhere. The, the sun generates positrons in its, uh, in it, during its uh, um, eruptions of, the, of uh, solar flares. And the cosmic rays hitting the solar wind generate antiprotons all the time. I mean, we've, had, we've sent up particle detectors and measured pro antiprotons and positrons in orbit around Earth. So the interesting thing is, I mean, what you're pointing out is that and we're not casting aspersions necessarily. Well, I don't know your views on dark matter and dark energy, uh, which are, you know, dark matter is a theory that uh, we need this missing mass to make up, to, to better to understand how gravity functions on large scales in terms of how uh, galaxies uh, rotate. And then we need the dark energy was, uh, we need dark energy to explain the seeming acceleration of the universe. Uh, we know the universe is expanding, the Hubble expansion. We get that. But the dark energy was invoked uh, in the late 90s to explain this seeming acceleration of the universe. And, uh, and, and after 30 years of looking, they still haven't seen any sign of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they see the, they see, they, they, they're not casting aspersions on the fact that they see the acceleration, what they interpret as the acceleration, but they still can't explain it. No more than they can explain, you know, what really is behind dark matter either. Because a lot of people hear the term antimatter and they automatically associate it with something that's beyond the horizon physics. This is existing physics, and we're going to talk about that a bit later. But, I mean, this is existing physics that's in science fiction, but it's, it's physics that is known. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing about antimatter. Maybe we don't understand it completely, I guess, but it's common accepted physics, right? Antimatter. Oh, yeah. And, in fact, the, the, uh, the speed of your semiconductors in your laptop uh, are basically the limit is based on positron-electron pair production in the junctions, uh, in those little capacitors formed by the junctions on your individual transistors on the silicon chip. 
So it's it's in everything we do now. We've measured it uh, up one side, down the other. There's there's nothing controversial about the production or use of antimatter. So as I quoted you in Forbes, if antimatter comes in contact with normal matter, it annihilates its partner particle and generates as much as two billion electron volts. That's two GeV in the process. Yes, that's it's basically two billion times the energy that you would get from a typical uh, a chemical reaction. And the idea for antimatter propulsion has been to take as much of that energy as possible and use it to heat hydrogen to high temperatures, which is then blown out the back of a rocket, so to speak. Is that right? Right. It's the, yeah, it's the ultimate in uh, uh, potential energy that you have the just basically this lump of stuff that when you do something to it, all of a sudden it releases a bunch of energy. Okay, and so that's why it was uh, thought uh, very early on for propulsion, like Star Trek, because that was the ultimate form of energy storage. So what's your own antimatter propulsion design? It's been around for a while, but can you describe it without giving away proprietary details? I mean, there's nothing proprietary about what we're doing with this. Okay, this is all public knowledge. Okay, so the idea is that we want to um, use the least amount of antimatter as possible because it's still hard to produce here on Earth, okay? And until we launch harvesters that, uh, you know, uh, accumulated in outer space around Earth orbit or do something else, it's still kind of the limiting uh, aspect to using antimatter for propulsion. So you really want to get the most bang for your buck and, and use as little as possible. So in, so you don't want to use it as fuel, okay? So what we did is we decided to use it as spark plug. So the idea is to use it to induce fission in uranium. Now, the beauty of this is you don't need enriched uranium. You don't need a specific isotope of uranium regular depleted uranium that you find in bullets and in artillery shells and things like that works. So the idea is that you, you send an antiproton just at, you know, sort of thermal velocities wafting onto a surface of, of uranium, let's say a uranium sail or uranium plate. And it's when the antiproton comes in contact with that plate, because it's negatively charged, it acts like an electron gets um, ad, uh, adopted by an uranium molecule. It then goes through these uh, transitions and decays down to a ground state, which hits the, the nucleus itself, and it'll annihilate against either one of the protons or one of the neutrons in the uranium nucleus. You know, the uranium nucleus has typically 238 uh, protons and neutrons, 92 of which are protons. And so when the antiproton comes in, it hits one of those and it annihilates and then it uh, induces fission. And so, you know, the same as a, a nuclear reactor, that fission releases a lot of energy. It's uh, 200 MeV per uh, fission. And so we use the fission daughters from those fission events to actually produce the propulsion. Okay, so now the beauty is we don't need a critical mass. We could have a very, very thin layer of uranium and still get fission. Okay, let me let me interrupt you. Okay, so explain uh, to the audience what fission is. It, it's it's splitting the atom, right? And fusion is is uh, fusing two different atoms. First yeah, it done. turns out that uh, it turns out that if you combine two atoms uh, that are lighter than iron, you will get excess energy from that fusion. 
above iron, so uranium, thorium, all those things, if you split that atom, you get more energy out. Okay, and so that's where all our nuclear power plants around Chicago and you know around the world that they're they're quickly closing down in some places. Those are based on splitting uranium and and uh, harvesting the energy out of that um, uh, fission. And what are the fission daughters that you're talking about? What what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you well the the okay. So I said the uranium is got a mass of about two hundred thirty eight protons and neutrons, okay? And so when you split it, naively, you would think you would get two equal um, pieces. So, uh, you know, 114 and 114 or something like that, which is, you know, molybdenum or tungsten or something like that. But in actuality, it's kind of a bimodal distribution and you tend to get a lighter and a heavier element, but basically you get two lighter um, nuclei out of the one original uranium nuclei. You say that you would only need 17 grams of anti-hydrogen to travel to Alpha Centauri, which is about four light years away. Okay, the Alpha Centauri system. With velocities touching a, a tenth of light speed, you estimate the probe would speed across the, the four light years in only 40 years. Is that right? Right. That's that's kind of the naive. If you don't, I mean, it's a little bit slower than that because you're accelerating over a period of time, like 10 years, and then you're decelerating for 10 years. So it's a little bit longer than that, but that's basically the idea. And, and But this would not make a round trip. I mean, basically... No, we, we never, ever envisioned round trips. So basically, uh, if we can get it up to a tenth of the speed of light, you you take into account the fact that you got to accelerate and then decelerate. And then... Let's say you put this baby in orbit around uh, a planet or just around the star, you know, or maybe you do a flyby, whatever. Maybe maybe you could program it so that it went by Proxima Centauri and then Alpha Centauri and you kind of get close enough that you can see uh, see what's happening in these systems and send and send back data in in real time. At four light years, you're still talking about, uh, you know, you launch it. It's going to take 45 years to get there, and uh, then you send the data back. You're talking about a 60-year a time investment. In other words, so that means that a postdoc that is working on this project when he's uh, 24 would be 84 by the time it, it reached fruition, right? Right, but that's not unusual in science. Uh, that's actually very typical. In fact, you have postdocs right now studying the Voyager and Pioneer data, you know, what is it, 40, 50 years after they were launched. Right. So yeah. that, that is not at all unusual. you got to look at any sort of space uh, uh, development as cathedral building. For the public that likes TikTok and Snapchat and online news, who have uh, attention spans of titsy flies already, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure they're going to be so interested in a probe that won't return data in 60 years. So you noted in Forbes that a small antimatter robotic probe would consist of four basic components. A depleted uranium carbon sail. What is a depleted uranium-coated carbon sail? Uranium ore is a composite of uranium-238, which is non-fissionable, and then it has U-235, U-233, uh, U-233 is fissile, 
U-235 is uh, actually fissile, but also can generate chain reactions and you can get nuclear reactions from it. So U-235 is what's used in uh, atomic bombs. It's used in atomic power plants. Uh, so what happens is when you want to build a reactor or bomb, you need the U-235. So you purify that and you're left with depleted uranium, which is uranium without the U-235 in it. So that's what I mean by depleted uranium. It's basically just almost pure 238. Okay, so the four basic components as you outlined them for your robotic probe are that carbon sale, a solid anti-hydrogen storage unit, and then an anti-proton-driven electrical power supply and a small payload instrument package at the back of the, of the spacecraft. And then you, uh, you told me that you use the anti-proton as you mentioned before, as a spark plug to induce fission. And from this fission emerges what you term lighter fission daughter products, byproducts. Correct. Uh, and then uh, you told me that upon being struck, uh, upon the, being struck by anti-hydrogen protons, a portion of the depleted uranium situated on coated foil inside the spacecraft is caused to fission. One fission daughter heads in the direction of the spacecraft's uranium-coated carbon sail and is decelerated and absorbed, imparting its momentum into the sail. The other escapes into space in the form of conventional propellant exhaust, and it's the opposing forces of their magnetic kinetic energies that enable the spacecraft to reach such high speeds. So to, get out, to go to Alpha Centauri or any other star you have to be some reasonable fraction of the speed of light. Okay, so 1%, 10%, 20% depends on, you know, what you, your, your um, patience level is, I guess. So it turns out that 1% of the speed of light is actually already sort of particle accelerator level of velocities for, the, for um, mass, okay? And so you can't do that by just heating up some gas and expelling it out of the back. Okay, it doesn't. It's just too slow. I mean, you're you're in the regime of speed of sound, and that is so much slower than the speed of light. So, if you want to go uh, roughly a fraction of the speed of light, you have to emit an exhaust, which is roughly if some fraction of the speed of light, also, or else you're you're just not going to get there. Okay, that's this is called the rocket equation. Okay, this is basic physics. So, if you want to get up to five percent of the speed of light, you need a five percent speed of light particle coming out of your your um, rocket engine that is an mev proton so that's already something that would come out of a cyclotron or some other kind of particle accelerator okay now it turns out that in a fission reaction the particle those fission daughters come out at about one mev per um, per nucleon which is that four percent of the speed of light 4.6 percent of the speed of light is the average velocity so that allows you to get up to 5% with a lot more mass in the fuel, maybe 10% of the speed of light. But an antimatter rocket would only be launched outside of Earth's atmosphere. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's like the Saturn V had a kerosene first stage, and then the upper stages, they had a hydrogen oxygen. Okay. You, there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all engine. That's not true of cars, trucks airplanes, anything else. Okay, so depending on which phase of the mission you're in, you're going to need a different type of engine. 
So the problem, though, with working with antimatter is that one has to keep it from touching matter, which is surprisingly hard to do. I've never had that much of a a problem with it. I mean, we've stored um, uh, antimatter for months. So, I mean, it's not that hard. I mean, you just have to pay attention to detail. You have to have a good vacuum. You have to have uh, a good uh, confinement vessel. But other than that, it works. And so you write that such an unmanned mission will require unprecedented levels of redundancy, artificial intelligence, communication bandwidth, and hence onboard electrical power. But given needed deceleration before arrival, you think just making the crossing to Proxima Centauri will t- would take maybe 50 years. I'm not even sure that the, that the planet that was initially discovered around Proxima Centauri is even known to exist now, because I think there's been some doubt cast on that. I, have, have you followed that yourself? Yeah, I have. I mean, Proxima B, I think, is pretty settled now. Uh, that is in the habitable zone. It is a, it's a kind of Earth-like in the sense that it's a few Earth, uh, Earth masses, but it's, it's basically very, it's, it's been confirmed. Congress called on NASA, though, to follow a technology roadmap for developing an interstellar propulsion system that would achieve at least 10% of the speed of light and that would launch no later than July 20th, 2069, the 100th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. What happened with that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, you know, it, it, a little bit of historical perspective is important on that. If you look at the Saturn V and the uh, lunar landing with Apollo 11, okay, it took 55 years from the initial work of uh, Robert Goddard, Robert, Robert Goddard, Goddard, yeah, Goddard, who yeah. did the staging, liquid fuels, gyroscopes, all those things were all necessary in order to make the Saturn V fly. Okay, and then you had the the incentive of World War II and Werner von Braun, and you know the missiles and the Cold War and all that sort of stuff. So you had a lot of different ingredients in a 55-year period in order to get ready for what became the uh, Apollo 11. There are no such other reinforcing incentives right now. And so there's no reason to do this. And because of pandemics, medical research, you know, cancer, all the other priorities that go into making life better for humans, uh, it just hasn't been something that people have been concentrating you told me that even if uh, money were plentiful, 10 years would not be enough time to accumulate enough antimatter to get the Proxima Centauri. We've but, since come up with a much better factory, and we think we could produce enough fuel in about six years. Uh, but you did say that you could also test a probe in low Earth orbit. Yeah, I mean, you, could, you, could, you know, you could launch you know, nanogram and do a little propulsion test and things like that. I mean, that's certainly doable. So who else is working on this technology? I mean, NASA itself has worked on it, not just you. I mean, you were part of a NIAC study. And forgive me, what does NIAC stand for? I've, I've actually forgotten it. Well, it changed over the years, but it, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. Okay, and you got a you got a NIAC grant several years ago, and you did that, and then well, I just finished one uh, recently. Oh, you did a a twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and so what happened with that? The most recent one. Uh, We wrote up a final report, and uh, it's now in a drawer. And has NASA expressed any interest in 
you know, additional funding for this? Well, I mean, I could apply for a phase two, but the it's pretty low probability to get a phase two. Plus, some of the people on the board of directors were outright hostile to uh, some of our, our talks and, and our uh, proposals. So there was very, I mean, the writing was on the wall. There was really no point. Why were they out, outright hostile? I mean, I don't, uh, it, I mean, they just, uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I mean, they're, they're, they're not scientists, but they're on the board of directors and they uh, made comments that uh, belied uh, what a scientist would, would be thinking in, in this sort of work. But I don't know. It's just, that's who they have on their board. And that's, you know, the sort, you know, you can't control what people think. And that's, I mean, that's why you have juries of 12, right? I mean, you're saying they didn't like the idea of using antimatter propulsion, period? Just the fact that I work on antimatter, they, in their head, I was a kook. You've proven in the lab. Believe me, I have decades of experience working with antimatter. I have decades of experience uh, in technology, building things, and, 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 and patents and everything else. I have no idea where they got this idea from, but I can't control what people think. Well, that's sad. So, in other words, this these are not NASA employees. These are uh, people that NASA has chosen to serve on a board to review projects. Is that what it is? Yep, yep. And some of them are not even scientists. Uh, I think they have a technical background, but it's been decades since I think they've used it. Uh, look, I mean, I'm not here to, to cast aspersions on anybody. It's just that... When you're, I mean, I have a, I'm a businessman, right? I have a company. I'm, tr- I'm trying to, you know, uh, do science, but at the same time, I have to earn a living. And so it's clear that going the, the government route and going through NASA to do this sort of work is not the way to do it, okay? Uh, crowdsourcing and finding private investors is a much better way to go. Who else is working on the technology? Uh, is a uh... Are the Russians, the Japanese, uh, the European Space Agency, the no one? The, the no only one. other, the only other person who I think is credible in doing this sort of work is Ryan Weed, who runs Positronic uh, Positron Dynamics or Positronic um, Dynamics. He's uh, out in the West Coast. He's a, a test pilot for the Air Force. And uh, he's a very smart guy, and he w- he's using uh, positrons rather than antiprotons. And, and he's got and he was a NIAC fellow over a year ago, and um, didn't get a phase two either, by the way. But a very bright guy. So he's the only other person I know of who, other than just dabbling or you know writing a paper once every twenty years, is actually concentrating on this. And he's trying to use it for a, a pro- an interstellar probe or a space probe, or is he? I, I think he was actually also looking at an air-breathing engine. Good Lord. So, in other words, to have an antimatter, uh, air-breathing aircraft of some sort. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you should interview him. He's actually a, a very good guy. That, that brings me to the next question, though. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned that. Does antimatter have other practical applications that might make this research more attractive to mainstream corporate interests? Yes. In fact, uh, my first, uh, when I went uh, into the private industry, the first uh, funding I got was for cancer therapy using antiprotons. So it's uh, similar to proton therapy, except uh, you, much lower doses. You could do children, uh, you could do infants under uh, a year old without uh, major IQ loss. 
there are a lot of advantages of using uh, antiprotons over regular proton therapy. And uh, you only need a very, very, very small quantity. So even back in the Fermi lab days, you could treat uh, uh, something like 10 patients a day, which a normal proton therapy center uh, does about a thousand a year. So that's already more than a standard um, proton therapy center. So how could this uh, antimatter propulsion be scaled up? Um, I mean, you're talking about a robotic probe, right? Uh, how, but right. how could it be scaled up so that you could use it not just to make a, an interstellar robotic probe, but to use it to cut down on travel times for human spaceflight within our own solar system, from Earth to Mars, from Earth to the asteroid belt? or When you're dealing with humans, you're, ta- you're, use- you're talking about tons, okay? The, I mean, everything is measured in tons, okay? You have tons of air, tons of water, tons of food, you know, tons of shielding. I mean, everything is in tons, okay? And so when you're, when you're in that regime, having a, a critical mass of enriched uranium for a regular rocket engine, a nuclear-powered rocket engine, works. And there's, it is, it's known technology. It's something we could do tomorrow, and we can go around, we can move around the solar system much, much faster than anybody has been talking about with chemical rockets. Okay, so I would not use antimatter for anything within our solar system. I think that's a misuse of the resource. We should really be concentrating more on um, conventional nuclear propulsion for those applications. And and that's a long time coming. I, I actually, that was one of the first articles I did for Forbes in, in uh, March of 2012, or April of 2012, on uh, the case for nuclear propulsion. And finally, nine years after what is it, 2021, nine years after that article, NASA is talking about nuclear propulsion seriously, or at least they're paying lip service to it. Well, well no, they, they have to. They have to now because the, the medical repercussions of going that slow to Mars have now hit everybody full force in the face. And they realize that just there's, it's not going to happen without nuclear rockets. Okay, I think that's now a foregone conclusion. You are not going to Mars with chemical rockets. You're saying that even Elon Musk is going to have to go nuclear to get to Mars? Well, it depends on what the volunteers are, I mean, what his volunteers are willing to suffer going there, okay? Now, if it's a government-sanctioned trip, you're not going, okay, so... The, the analogy I use is the Conestoga wagons in the Midwest pioneers. This, the, um, the survival rate for those people was roughly 50%. So 50% made it to their destination. The other 50% died. There is no way the government is going to fund a research program that has 50% fatality rates. In the case of the mission to Mars, it's not so much fatality, but it's major IQ losses, neurological issues, things like that. Can you find volunteers who will do a one-way mission to Mars with a 50% um, survival probability? Of course, you'd have a line, you know, you'd have a a miles-long line of volunteers to do that. But you're not going to do that with a government sanction. But let's talk about the culture of advanced propulsion research in the U.S. in general. Why is there not any real emphasis on alternatives to chemical rocket propulsion here? You just mentioned nuclear, yeah. Missions that you see, like, you know, New Horizon, for instance, okay? That mission is championed with champion and pushed through Congress and pushed through NASA, 
by astrophysicists, okay? Not by rocket scientists, okay? Rocket scientists, in a sense, are subservient to the, um, to the astrophysicists, okay? So the astrophysicists say, we want to go this far, we want to do this with this mass, we want these instruments, and so on. The rocket scientists then can say, well, you know, you can get, you can have more mass, you can go do this, and you can have all these extra bells and whistles if you go with this experimental propulsion system that has never been used on a previous mission. And 99% of the time, the, uh, the astrophysicists will say, it's too risky, I don't want to threaten my um, project, so therefore I want to go conservative. Okay, this happens in the medical community, it happens in the particle accelerator and the particle physics community where the particle physicists want to discover the Higgs particle. And so they want the least risky accelerator built that will get them to their discovery, okay? And it's the same psychology that's at play here. Uh, Fermilab was uh, founded by a man named uh, Robert Wilson. His philosophy was that it's a sin to build a boring particle accelerator, okay? Because you're not, you're not learning anything from the next project. So in what we need are more Robert Wilsons in the space mission directorate, where even though it might be safer to build something with chemical rockets instead of nuclear propulsion, they should really be pushing for those next generation technologies so that they can uh, enable better and more um, advanced missions later in time. No one, people are so risk adverse right now that they're not willing to stick their neck out. It's very hard to fight back and say, no, we need to get this damn thing off the ground. The people who say go slow always win the argument. But in general, why does NASA or any sort of state-sponsored space agency, why do they seem to be so reticent to talk about faster-than-light propulsion or warp warp drive that doesn't really violate causality the speed of uh, uh, the, the speed of light is as defined by Einstein I mean, why you know why don't why are they not willing to think outside the box more first of all they did fund it um, you had uh, Mark Millis at the Glenn Research Center right who, that, um, yeah, right did a lot uh, of that work. Millis was a guest earlier on this ep- on this podcast and uh, we had a nice discussion and you know he's still involved to some extent with all this, but right. now the, the but other that answer was, is but that was a, that was the exception. That was the exception, and that that funding has ended. That ended right. twenty years ago. The problem, the other problem is NASA is ostensibly a technology, science, engineering organization. Right now, for warp drives, we don't even have theory. We don't even have hypotheses of how you would go about doing it. Well, you have so therefore, you have you have the Miguel Alcubierre. A paper that theoretically proves that warp drive is possible without violating causality, and there have been actually supporting papers since, in the past two years, which support this idea. But again, no one seems sci- to take it seriously. Again, science is about observation and provable facts. Okay, anybody can write a paper. I mean, I'm not casting aspersions at all. He might be a brilliant guy, but until it's actually some until his theory has an observable that someone goes out and tries to measure and either finds it or doesn't find it, it's not science. Why is it that uh, you don't seem to have more out-of-the-box thinking about advanced propulsion concepts at not just NASA? I'm not picking on NASA. I love NASA. 
But the European Space Agency, why aren't the Russians doing this, or the Japanese, or the, or the Indians even? I mean, you know. But where would you start? Who would you hire to start building? I mean, I so the problem, okay, so, it, okay. Inside, well, uh, if it, I would start at the blackboard, frankly. I would, if, 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 if money were no object, I would, uh, and, and someone gave me a billion dollars or said you can use this for advanced propulsion study, I'd take that billion dollars, I'd invest it wisely and use the, the byproduct to hire a, you know, a hundred uh, people to do nothing but sit at their computers and do computer models of crazy concepts about how to uh, circumvent the speed of light uh, to get warp drives. You know, you might have ten. You know, divide them into teams. I look. I agree with you. There should be. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how much. I, whether it's a hundred thousand a year or a million a year or ten million a year, I don't know that. But I agree there should be at least some amount of money for those sort of really out there ideas. Pure okay? research. Pure pure research. Nothing is too crazy. And now what we don't want is like what Millis said. You know, he, he spent a lot of his time dealing with people who contacted him with these wild ideas from people who are not scientists necessarily, who don't have any background in physics and you know, I even get contacted by some of those type people and I'm I'm not I'm glad they're interested in science. I'm glad they're interested in propulsion. I'm talking about people who are trained in physics, theoretical physics, applied physics, whatever, uh, and a think-type situation. Which brings me, you know, basically to the meeting that you're attending later uh, this summer, I believe. It's it's now called the Interstellar Research Group, yep. The Interstellar Research Group. And you're meeting when? In the end of September in Tucson. And uh, these are people who are what? I mean, they're basically people. They're scientists uh, and engineers and actually sci-fi writers. But everybody who's interested in interstellar missions and visiting, you know, an exoplanet and uh, working together on some of the concepts. So, you know, I've been there for the last few years. The uh, Breakthrough Starshot people have been there for the last few years. Mark Millis has been there. I mean, basically, everybody who is interested in this problem show up once every two years for this meeting. So what needs to be done on the academic level in order to foster research for a next generation of advanced propulsion mechanisms? I mean, it would certainly help if we had missions that started using some of these advanced propulsion ideas. You've just (laughs) had ion engines used. You've had um, you now are about to have some solar sailing uh, missions approved. Uh, I think that's Les Johnson at uh, Marshall Space Flight Center is working on with that um, on that project. So you are getting a few little projects now out to like the asteroid belt or to visit a comet, things like that. Okay, not not yet on the major interplanetary missions like to Pluto, Jupiter, Neptune, Uranus, things like that. But I think. You know, things like um, ion engines are have come along enough now that I think that some of the newer missions will have that in, in place. Uh, you have people like a Jet Propulsion Laboratory who are looking at going to the gravitational lens point of the sun, which is outside of the solar system beyond the um, heliopause, the edge of the magnetic field formed by the sun. And uh, to do that, they're going to need an advanced propulsion system. So I don't know within Jet Propulsion Laboratory what their current thinking is, but 
Uh, they'll be there at this meeting also uh, in September in Tucson. Just give us a brief parenthetical definition of ion propulsion. It's electric ion propulsion. Uh, right. So it's basically a particle accelerator that is taking ions and accelerating them with electric fields out the back to get up to uh, higher velocities than you can get with chemical reactions. So, for instance, if you have, um, I don't know, uh, let's call it uh, neon or argon gas, and you take one of the electrons away from each atom, that's now a singly charged ion. And now if you put that in an electric field, it will accelerate and come out the back at some high velocity. So what is the speed limit on ion propulsion? Power. You're completely, you're completely limited by the onboard power. So, but theoretically, how fast could you get it? Oh, I, well, okay. I mean, I don't know the actual answer to that because it depends on what power supply you're talking about. If it's an antimatter uh, generator, then pretty fast. If it's uh, a nuclear thermal, or not, sorry, nuclear electric, so you have a reactor that has some sort of Brayton cycle or you know some way of generating electricity from heat and then converting that electricity into thrust, uh, then you're talking about uh, velocities that are on tens of kilometers per second, which right now chemical rockets are a few kilometers per second. So you're, you're getting a factor of 10 sort of increase. Ion propulsion could perhaps be used to go a tenth the speed of light? I doubt you're going to get that high, but certainly within our solar system and going to the outer solar system and just beyond our solar system, that those are certainly, uh, you can achieve those missions with ion propulsion. You have to remember that going out to the next star is 2,000 times further than where Voyager is right now. Good. Okay. Gosh, a yeah. factor of 1,000 is a big deal when propulsion, when you're fighting for every factor of two. Whew. That's a long way and a long time. Okay. So finally, uh, what puzzles you most about why there has been so little progress in the realm of advanced propulsion? Uh, I think as I've gotten older, I've become less puzzled because I understand human nature a little bit more in this idea of risk aversion. This idea, I mean, I grew up, I mean, I was, what, nine years old when we landed on the moon for the first time, okay? And back then, NASA could do no wrong, and everybody looked to NASA to get us out into space, okay? You know, you had 2001 A Space Odyssey with Kubrick, and you had this vision of just in a few years, we're going to, you know, that was 20 years into the future, we thought we were going to have space stations and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That never happened because we relied on NASA, okay? I think the better model is the Elon Musks and people like that. Necessity is the mother of invention. If you don't have people driving a project, it just will sit there and just consume money and make no progress. You need somebody who really drives people hard like Elon Musk to get it to happen. The other thing is that Government labs are not hiring the, the people. The, the hiring criterion is not based on innovation. It's based on credentials and papers and things like that. Okay. If you were back in the turn of the century and you wanted an airplane, the last person you would go out and hire are a couple of guys owning a bicycle shop in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it, they had the drive, they had the vision, and they um, uh, were able to find the resources to make it happen. Elon Musk has the drive. He has the resources. He's finding a way to make it happen. I think that is the model. 
we need to forget this model that somehow governments are going to do this. Have you made overtures to Musk to try to bring him into the advanced propulsion fold? No, I haven't. I mean, shouldn't somebody from your group that's meeting in Tucson, you know, be trying to contact the Musk and say, hey, you know, we know you want to get to Mars, but, you know, let's let's think bigger, guy. There are companies out there who are actually trying to do this, this next step, nuclear propulsion, you know, a nuclear tug to go back and forth between Earth orbit and lunar orbit. The a nuclear propulsion to go to the Mar- to Mars and so on. So there are companies out there. I mean, there are a bunch of people who I know, like Chris Morrison and others, uh, UltraSafe and uh, these other companies out there, who are actually trying to make a business out of uh, producing these reactors for lunar power for colon, you know, for spe- um, lunar colonies and for um, nuclear propulsion. If Musk were going to put his money anywhere, he should put it in those with those people, not with those of us who are thinking yet two other two generations beyond that. I know that uh, you spent a lot of time at Fermilab, fourteen years. You know, so you, you may or may not be an amateur astronomer. So when you look up at the at a clear night sky, if you can get one in the Chicago suburbs, I guess, what do you think of? It's it's interesting you mentioned that. I actually have a degree in astronomy. Also. Oh, okay, you didn't mention <laughs> but, uh, that. Egg on my face. So, so I actually, when I look up, most of the time I'm looking for satellites, and you know, you can see the space station come over and wink in, wink in and out. You know, when it goes into the sunlight and leaves the sunlight. I mean, I'm I don't look at the stars as much as I look at just our progress um, as a species, how we're getting out there and how much progress we're doing. The, the stars have been there always. They'll be there long after I die. I'm more interested in what we as a, a species could do to get out there. Gerald, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, I mean, email is the best way to contact me. Um, G Jackson two, the number two. So G is a Gerald Jackson two at H bar tech H B is a boy, a R T E C H dot com. I'm not on social media because I have a choice. Either I could be on social media or I could do work and I can't do both. As always, please follow cosmic controversy at Bruce or at B Dormany on my Twitter feed. Gerald Jackson, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the possibilities that antimatter propulsion actually presents. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.